0: Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds
1: better with us. Hello and welcome to today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. If you're not familiar with this podcast, well, it's a series of interviews that are done on my kitchen table in Dublin with all sorts of interesting people who've had success in their chosen walks of life and who continue to have very interesting stories to tell. We're delighted that we have the assistance and help of Strategic Power Connects in putting together this series of interviews. Strategic Power Connects is very involved in the transition to the renewables of the future. Indeed, things that we need very much in the future as we deal with climate change and other issues. So we thank them for the support. Now, today's guest on Magnified is a businessman who has had a really interesting career Having left school at his intercert, he left in slightly different circumstances and he continued to get an education by night once he had righted the family business. And he went on and he did his master's and then became an investor and a stockbroker, as all sorts of interesting things he has done in his career. So I hope you enjoy Colin Freel. Colfield, we're here today on a day when the storm is blowing outside. And I saw you had done an interview previously in which you say six o'clock every morning, Dunleary Pier, no matter what the weather is. Did you manage it this morning?
0: Fifteen minutes later, quarter past six, and it was absolutely gorgeous out there.
1: It wasn't stormy like this. Oh, it was
0: blowing like hell, but the rain had stopped. Yeah, it was actually really, really nice. It was now in the winter, it's the East Pier, because the lights are off in the West Pier. So West Pier, summertime, go right down to the very end. And now in the winter, I went down as far as the bandstand on the East Pier, which was absolutely divine. Big waves, roaring wind, but no rain.
1: And part of Donegal you're from, is that also by the
0: sea? Absolutely West Donegal, pretty close to the sea.
1: So is that an important thing for you, to have, to have that connection each day with the water?
0: Actually, that's a good point. Um... Yes and no, and this I would uh, lived in Black Rock Monkstown for about 10 years. I had never gone down. The seafront's quite funny. I had young kids, moved there, 2003, 2004, and then suddenly, after say about nine, 10 years, I discovered 300 yards down below the house, there was a seafront. And it's quite funny, you know, you have young kids and you just get busy. And now it's a big part of my life. I'd never leave it. I just decided,
1: well, I could never leave that
0: seafront ever again.
1: You had 10 years before you realized where you were. I
0: feel so bad. Or, or I lived there 10 years to realize that it could take me five minutes walk from our house down on to the lower road over the, there's a bridge walkway across the Dart Line, and hey presto you're on Brighton Terrace you're right on the seafront so it's absolutely gorgeous down there
1: We're going to talk about your businesses and life sciences in particularly and your career as an entrepreneur and it is I think something that will be important to talk about as well about the whole development of small Irish businesses which is something that you're very involved in but I want to go back to the start of your business career, which came when you were still an intercert student. And I say intercert because we're of a similar age. It was before the junior cert came along. And family circumstances meant that you didn't go on to do the leaving cert and took over the family business. What was the family business?
0: Yeah, look, I, we look back and we think, I just think history keeps repeating itself. Late 70s in Donegal, my family had a business, a Ford franchise for North Donegal. Jack Lynch government. My dad started expanding the business, borrowing loads of money, 1980. It was almost deja vu, interest rates went through the roof. He got sick, bank came looking for the money. So I had to leave school or <laughs> with hindsight, uh, yeah, there was no other choice. Somebody had to leave school and sort the bank
1: out. Wh- why you given that, you're one of a big family and you were one of the younger ones, weren't you? Yeah, or kind
0: of middle, three younger, what's that, five, six older than me. It was kind of just wrong place, wrong time, or with hindsight, looking back, right place.
1: Hang on, maybe did they identify you and say, well, Cottle is the one who's got the business smarts? Possibly, but
0: probably more simply, being frank, I think my dad had a crack at the oldest son many years earlier, and he went on to university and refused to come back. There was another brother, a couple years older and he had a shot at him as well. He turned out, I think, basically when... The the trouble started with the bank and his health. Basically, he said, Right, you'll do. You're intersert. And it was kind of a collective decision, right? Somebody had it. The guys at university decided, No, there's no way they were coming back to Donegal. It was kind of, Well, not my problem.
1: But hold on a second. You were what age? 16? 16. Okay, and you were dealing with the banks and you're running a business. Yep. How did they treat you? First of all, the banks.
0: Actually, believe not quite nice. Uh, They were the local bank managers. This is old better not mention the name of the bank, but old traditional banking where the bank manager was my dad's best friend. Uh, he was in no position really to pay the money back. Interest rates was up. He owed more money. So it was very, very friendly. Uh, it was very different to the banking now, but it was very firm. He said, look, um, you'll have to... So it was worked closely with a local bank branch where the money was owed, but it was very clearly he was delighted that somebody had left school or somebody had come in to take control of the business. Uh, okay, it was a bit young, Um but from the bank's perspective here was somebody who was going who kind of knew something about the business if I didn't go in it was basically do it foreclose and wrap up the business and the bank manager made it clear as long as I kept working they'd leave the family home alone so that was basically the deal so comes a up, lot
1: of pressure to put on a 16 year old though you have to save the business to save the family home
0: yeah probably 16 year old didn't give much thought to it With the benefit of being a 16 year old you're a bit rush, uh, so I wouldn't have given much thought to time other than within 3 months I actually thought I was, wow I really missed school the first 3 months wasn't too bad and then it was being frank it was like firefighting for two or three years I didn't really have much So in what
1: way this was a car dealership or was there more in the business in the yeah, expansion as well
0: It was a Ford franchise from North Gold, there was a filling station small shop uh, actually interesting There was an insurance business as well Where we would have sold insurance To car customers And people in the area So it was an interesting business But rural Donegal West Donegal but hold
1: one. on You were selling cars at a time When you weren't old enough to drive uh, Well that was the time Legally uh,
0: yeah, I, Recently I was trying to persuade my own 15 years old 16 year old To do some driving lessons would we'll be down in Mandela Where you don't actually you, It's off road 13 year olds can drive Because it's private track And I was showing them An old licence I have kept uh, 30 years ago, you didn't have to show your date of birth, you just make it up. So basically, I would have a full license at 16, a year before you were supposed to have it. So then for many years, I had the license with the wrong date of birth, the wrong age. So many years later, I remember I went to Donegal County and folks, think I made a mistake and here's my birth cert and got a license with the proper date of birth on it.
1: <laughs> okay, but then you were selling the cars and how did you manage to get the business profitable again and keep the banks off your back.
0: Like all businesses, just more sales, more profits. Uh, and the problem was sales had drifted. The early 80s was a difficult time. And that's where it goes back to, I think people think, okay, the 2007, 2008 were difficult times, but I keep looking back. People, the Irish is, I think never been better shape compared to the 80s. All we do with the business was basically just keep it going. Um, and any business, keep it going keep making some money uh service the bank and eventually it works itself out but making profits and that goes back to every business i'm involved in that was the best lessons ever the reason the business got into trouble was it was losing money so all i focused on was basically making profits and if any business i feel if you make profits the rest takes care of themselves and that's what really happened that we got profitable and eventually sold it and moved on so I'd have a life to myself
1: There was an instinctive thing though was it that you realised how to run the business and how to manage the cash because you didn't have any presumably up to intracert in school any training in how to run business
0: Actually well the interesting part is and again I'm really proud of our 16 year old doing it I did uh, business studies for the first three years that I did spend at secondary school and basic business studies it was actually really interesting because there was actually a, accounts, ledgers, profits, loss so as a 16 year old uh, people are, if you look at the Irish it hasn't changed much the Irish, junior cert Irish, leaving inter cert did do basic economics did do the business studies, ledgers, purchases, profits, loss. So that was inviolable. Uh, I'd spent three years looking at it at, pro- at secondary school and suddenly, oh, this is profit and loss.
1: But you say you missed school when you dropped out of school. What, what did you miss, the friendships or what? Was it just because... You're an adolescent rather than an adult. Are, <laughs> yeah. you, are you now an adult?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think the big one would have been, um, it all happened so quick. I was back at school three days after the intercert looking forward to fourth year. And suddenly this mega disaster happened at home. Uh, my dad basically said, look, you're going to have to leave school. Otherwise, everything's up in smoke. So there was two, three months of not realising what's happened. Three months in. I thought it was the biggest mistake in my life and for the following two years i used to watch that bus come by the family business every morning with all my two of my younger siblings on it and all my school friends thinking wow why did this go wrong so it had added- a Look, you know, it was a tough couple of years. And then human nature kicks in. You get home with it and you make the most of it.
1: And were you given the autonomy to run the business or was your dad always looking over your shoulder?
0: No, he would very little to do with it, basically. He tried to look over the shoulder somewhat, but he just wasn't in a position. to His health wasn't great. He'd got himself into a mess and he kind of said, right, you sorted out. I was dealing with the banks and i did work most summers in the business before that so i did have it wasn't a case i came into a business not knowing anything and after for the first for two years before i left school uh, there was a long rural Donegal golf there was a bus service you'd leave at half seven quarter to, eight to go to school because the bus did a double run even nine o'clock school and the school would finish i think 3 15 but the bus wouldn't pick us up until 4.15 because I'd do a double run. So I used to hitch home. So I would hitch home and just get a lift Western Eagle. And instead of going home, I'd go into the business. So I did have a habit of going into the business for the previous two years. So I probably had put my, set myself up to be the guy who come here, son, sort this problem out.
1: But you didn't give up on education either, did you?
0: No. Within three months, I realised, wow, this is not good. (laughs) And literally, in the fact, I kept thinking, oh, how do I escape from this? immediately thought, this is not good. How all my siblings, and I was paying for siblings to go through university because university was very important in the school and, um, or within the household. So basically I said, I'm going to have to try and do something. So I went back and did, the Regional college in Ladakini was invaluable, so I did some courses there. I remember the first course that was a City and Gills diploma uh, in computer program because it was kind of curious. And then a couple of years later, University of Ulster had a postgraduate diploma in business studies, so I went on to that. And if you got a certain level in that, you could convert to a master's program. So I spent quite a few years going to college at night, eventually getting an MBA. And that I always felt the MBA was my ticket get out of rural Ireland, get out of Donegal. So once I got the MBA, I sold the business and took off.
1: Why did you want to get out of rural Donegal? Um, Have you been there? (laughs) Only once actually.
0: Okay, now this is not to offend any of my Donegal friends. I keep telling everybody Donegal is the most amazing place to go on holidays. It's the most amazing place to live as well. But for me, all my siblings, most of them left, went to university and I felt I was missing out. In the 80s, Donegal, most friends, relations would have gone off and worked in America. There was no work locally. That seemed interesting and exciting. So basically, once I'd left school, I said, I'll do this for a year or two or three. And then suddenly it became 10 years. But I always had the plan that, yes, once I sorted the family issues out, got the business stabilised, paid back the debt give my family some money, I would take off, enjoy a year off. So I always had this thing on my head, I'm taking a year off, to make up for not going to university, because I always said people going to university, have got two, three months off every summer.
1: Yeah, but what age were you when you went backpacking?
0: I was a slightly older backpacker, actually. But you were a
1: lot older yeah. backpacker, <laughs> yeah. in fairness.
0: Most backpackers are in the 20s, so it was eventually, I was, I'd been 31 before I eventually sold the business in 96. And it took off a year, it took a year to wrap it up and took off in Easter Monday, '97. I said i go traveling east, I went backpacking through Asia and came back Good Friday, '98. And I had this plan I'd come back to the Belfast or Dublin. I went high and would high instead I keep uh, scratching myself. I was lucky, it was toss a coin. And end up coming back to Dublin, not known as soul in the world in Dublin. But
1: before we get to that, is it true that at one stage you spent months driving a truck around Africa?
0: Yeah, part of the year off was basically I decided to do one of these overland trips. Three weeks, you would have seen them advertised many years ago in the Sunday Times. You'd go trips, you spent three weeks in a truck or four weeks or someone even three months. So I went on this one, was basically Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Namibia, three week. First week in the truck, the driver jumped out and broke his leg. And I kept thinking, hmm. And we were told, time to go home, holiday's over. And it was a truck full of 25 backpackers, including myself. And while in Donegal to occupy myself, I always need occupy, I used to do a lot of work with the, a place called Garton Outdoor Education Centre, which did a lot of work with probation service kids. And uh, I had a license called the H1 Limited that allowed me to drive um, a large minibus for 33 kids. So it was based H1 Limited. And I showed the uh, truck drivers, I said, listen, I could drive this thing. So basically, uh, the company let me drive the truck for three weeks. It was great fun.
1: And Asia, what did you get out of the trip though, at that age? I mean, is it better, do you think, to do a trip slightly older than to have done it straight out of school or college? I
0: think it depends. For me, as an early 30-year-old, I've loads of people that knew me. Said the Carl Freil who left. It was kind of weird. There was a few people I knew, particularly there was a particular ex-girlfriend and who stayed friendly for years later. And unfortunately, she died some years ago. But she said there's two Cahill Freils: the one before the year off and the one after. And I keep even telling my own kids, who's now I've got two teenage boys, a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old who are meeting their first girls and everything else. The huge change that year off took was that I was totally on my own uh stayed in backpacking hotels youth hostels because that's where there was much better fun you'd meet people i did have a few quid occasionally i stayed in a nice hotel and i traveled literally, did the round the world trip but anytime i stayed in a hotel i'd meet absolutely nobody the catering staff but if you stayed in the backpackers hostels you'd come in and sit down there was loads of people milling around and every day everyone wanted to meet people so when i came back from the year off I this idea and some work colleagues really annoyed with me. I go into an empty room, or into a room full of people and just pop my hand out and shake. I can actually speak to strangers. <laughs> Whereas before I took the year off, I've been quite shy and reticent and engaging. But having come back from the year off, I just I have this thing. Some of my friends in Marion stockbroker used to tease me. Wow, Carl, you love going into, a, let's say, a networking room with a glass of wine in your hands and let me just dive into the group and meet loads of people, which is a great skill everybody should learn. I learned that during my year off.
1: But had you not learned it though when you were a salesman for the car, for the cars in the showroom?
0: No, I think because that's kind of one-on-one. I think to answer the biggest change I found during the year off, you would actually get out and you'll be staying in bunk beds and some days you'll arrive in the strange youth hostel and you could settle in a corner and read a book as so many people do or i discovered after six nine months hey that's no fun just walk over to be a group of people around the dining table to be cooking dinner and say that initial the difficult part put your hand out hi. 90 percent of the time it works ten percent we get a frosty reception you just go to somebody else. So again, you know, to answer your question, Matt, during the year off, that was probably the two calls the quite shy, reserved Cahal who left. And a year later, it's completely different. And I used to, before I took the year off, used to, it was nerdy. I always had a problem chatting up girls, could never find a girlfriend, let's be honest. Uh, when I came back, I used to love going to nightclubs. Then when I came to Dublin, that's probably what made most of my contacts. I'd go to a nightclub with some loose friends. And I, any girl I'd say, just walk up, and it was always put the hand out and I do the same at work. And most girls, oh, he's about to shake my hand, so they think you're going to say, it. and then once you shake hands, hi. And then suddenly ice is broken. I learned that during the year off, it's really funny. And now, even in business meetings, I spend an awful lot of time in London and traveling or working. You go to these conferences and a and drag call, I guess, watch this, see those people over there, and just go, or put your hand out, and they go, oh, hi. And so, yeah, anyway, that's. Uh,
1: no, it's very important, uh, clearly, and it has worked for you in business. So let's go a little bit through, what brought you to Dublin? Um,
0: it was far away from Donegal. <laughs> okay, it's very cruel. I go back to Donegal every year for two weeks, bring the kids up. So you love Donegal. That's my main holiday every year. So, there. And do
1: you still have family there?
0: Yeah, yeah, I have two brothers and a sister um, who remained in Donegal. But no, Donegal, I love going there, going to a little place called port bring the kids every year, a few other kids, some other families and some families, like a family called Daddy's Donegal Summer Camp. I just love those two weeks. But I know I'd never lived there, but it's still nice. It's a bit like, it's where I came from. But choosing to come back in Easter 98, it was literally a toss coin. I had good few friends in Belfast. I'd been through the University of Ulster. I'd lectured there for a few years part-time while running another small business before it took off. And uh, I just said, I'll come to Dublin. It's slightly bigger. And with hindsight... It was so valuable because I have still lots of friends. I'm actually going to Newry tonight to a very good friend's mum who's elderly died. So I've got lots of Belfast connections. But that decision in life, coming to Dublin, has been huge. I could never have done a fraction of what I've done in Dublin ever stayed in Belfast.
1: And what did you get into first when you came to Dublin?
0: Yeah, and this is actually, again, learnings. Uh, learnings go and meet people, put your hand out. So I knew nobody, literally nobody. I had a sister in Dublin, uh, another ju- younger brother. That was it. So I sent out literally dozens, every week, CVs, CVs. 98, sort of tech.com was taken off. And I set a goal every week. I sent out dozens and dozens. At that stage, email still wasn't great, if you remember 98. But was e- I wrote a letter. You send two every day. Tried to send at least... 10, 12, 14 every week to every tech company it was up and coming in Dublin and basically got lots of interviews. But
1: hold on, what was your technology at that stage?
0: None. <laughs> None. And that was the interesting part. I had this uh, very early stage interest in technology going back to eighty six and dirty god. I had a certificate in computer program, but I had absolutely no experience in tech companies. So I kept sending the CV out, kept getting and uh, Kept getting interviews or kind of curious what this person was, and that's how, believe it or not, I met an awful lot of people in Dublin. I said I did about a hundred interviews between May '98 and October '98, and eventually I changed the tune uh, and said to a couple of them, I'll work for free for three months. And a company called All Finance said, Oh, work for free, yeah, okay, we gotta go and uh, I worked for free for the first three months in all finance and then worked at a very nominal salary for another three months and then suddenly they made me deputy CEO whatever that meant.
1: Hang on, h- how big was this company and what did it do? It had about, it had about 55,
0: 60 staff, typical Sorry, Hang
1: on, you went from the free intern to being deputy CEO in six months? In,
0: within the first year. In the first and year. it was because, bear in mind, I was at uh, this stage early, mid-30s. It was a bunch of very junior, 20-year-olds techies. So I was seen as slightly older, sensible one. I was seen as a person who ran a business, who kind of knew how to do a business, and also had the kind of nerve to come in and say, "I'll work for three months," and then on a nominal salary. They were they were getting venture capital, um, and the VC. There was a, an amazing row between those dual CEO, and you know, dual CEOs rarely work. So the dual CEO, they were best friends. They'd fallen out. And I was brought in really as the middleman to deal with the staff. And bear in mind, I had spent the previous 10 years managing at her peak in Donegal with 60, 70 staff. So managing staff probably was what I learned early age is really valuable. So the reason within two, three, four months in that company, All Finance, this dual CEOs who were at war with each other realized, hang on, this guy knows how to put out fires, deal with staff. So that's why within October 98, there may be deputy CEO in October 99. And it was great fun for a year. I decided after a year I would move again. Why? Um, The dual CEOs were going to go to court. (laughs) And I thought, okay, here comes trouble. I think I'll exit. And there was a guy called Sean Melly setting up a venture capital company. Poor old Sean has uh, passed away from us all. And I'd met him, again, this is the important bit, meeting people, arriving in Dublin, Easter ninety eight. there was a thing called First Tuesday and Wireless Wednesday. So in addition to doing about 100 interviews and meeting all the techie people in Dublin just by writing letters, I used to go to all of the First Tuesdays, Wireless Wednesdays, so I met a lot of people. And that's where they, I think anybody starting out their career Go out there Put yourself around Raise your profile Meet people And Dublin's Actually Dublin You can do it any city in the world Go to a lot of evening events Yeah but do
1: you need to have A certain type of personality To do that
0: Outgoing and I would not, my natural personality before that year off would have been introverted, shy.
1: I know a lot of people who say that and I wonder because they're outgoing, they're chatty and then they tell you really beneath it all, I'm shy and I go, really?
0: Yeah, I try that stunt occasionally, say, oh, I'm a poor, shy little guy from Donegal, the boy from Donegal, I try that. Yes and no, I th- I think it's a skill and anybody in business, and look, anybody, any career, I think it should be taught as... Just put yourself out. Like I'm so, for example, here, my 16-year-old is just in transition year, uh, and he's like getting on okay. And transition, you have to get these two weeks work experience and he knows daddy and mommy will try. And he says, no, daddy, don't you dare. I'll get it. And a few weeks ago, I got this WhatsApp. Look, daddy, got a job. So for juice, he's like me. He'd heard he sent out dozens and dozens of emails. Didn't say who he was. Can, and um, can I mention the name of the company? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, okay, TUI, the travel agent in Dublin, because my son does speak fluent. So yeah, Ryan, of course, come in. We can have your work experience. So he was so happy to get his, this week, windy day. He's just gone into TUI to do his first week work experience. But that was a skill he has learned. I'm so happy, transition year. T- taught him, he sent out dozens of emails most of them blank, 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 and then suddenly one of them came back. No, Ryan, of course you, will, you can come in. You have German, uh, you can speak fluent German. So that he's done the same thing as I did in 98. So back to answer your question is that's with people. Look, there's two ways to go through life. You can just pick a job, go from nine to five, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and just mind your own business. But if you that a little bit more ambition, Meet loads of people. The so skill is meeting people, but also is send those CVs, send those emails, just stretch yourself.
1: But what was your ambition? Was it to make money?
0: Yes and no. Money is a kind of, I would call a currency to see how you're doing, it's a bit like a game. No, my ambition, I think, even at the moment, I've done four IPOs, and plan on a fifth, it's just keep busy, create things. Uh, I think business is very creative. People think commercial like the old socialist philosophy, those terrible capitalists. But creating companies is mad fun. Uh, I think it's great fun. And like my wife gives out to me quite often, she says, oh, you, you treat your kid, your company as kids. I did come from a family of 10 in Donegal. I have three amazing kids, I love them. Uh, but each company i created, I've created four small public companies. One of them got very big, became a billion and a half before it got bought. Uh, but each one feels like a child. Some of these public companies, some of them like our kids, grow faster or bigger than others. And some of them chug along very nicely okay, and enjoy but can life. You,
1: can you get emotionally involved and start treating them like children? The reason I ask that is that one of the companies that you had an involvement with, and I'm jumping a little bit forward here, was FastNut. And you did admit that you could have actually sold it for a good price and you delayed and you didn't and the value fell away. Is that because you treated it like a child that you couldn't cut it loose? That is a
0: good question. Yes, sometimes kids maybe need a firm hand and maybe they're going out to a nightclub and you say, don't go out. So yeah, it took off. There was an opportunity to sell it and we, I think we thought we could have got more. And then suddenly oil price collapsed. People forget, like history, I keep saying history, pizza. Oil had gone between 2011 and 2012 from about $35, $40, peaked at $126 a barrel in late uh, 2012, went through the roof Fast it was out public, and that's a perfect time for small cap. And then suddenly people also forget it dropped 2013 for six months. It went from that peak to twenty five dollars in nine months. So that meant small cap oil and gas oil and gas companies were in trouble.
1: And you hadn't sold; you'd left that a little sold. bit too late. When you left Sean Melly, was that when you went into Stop Broken?
0: Yeah, look, Sean Melly again, was trying to start a small technology TMT fund. That would have been 99, 2000. He basically had met him through the circuit. He saw what he was doing in all finance. All finance had a very high profile in 97, 98. And there was the deputy CEO, the guy from Donegal. So
1: what exactly did all finance do?
0: Uh, actually, it was very innovative. It did automated underwriting, mainly into North America. The North American insurance market was just opening up, so it did an aut- automated underwriting. People could type in the bank, and they would get an automated underwriting policy.
1: Okay. So anyway, with Sean Melly, you did work with him, and then you went for a stockbroker.
0: Yeah, I worked with Sean for a year and a half to try and raise a fund. And then you had the dot-com bust, or we call it, two th- early 2000, the Microsoft was referred to the EU Commission and raising the fund was going to be very difficult. So then I knew, uh, again, through the meeting people in Dublin, not knowing anybody two years earlier, I had got friendly with a guy called John Conroy, who had set up Marion Stockbrokers, and John met me one night. He says, I, I was keeping him a loop what I was doing, because I just love sharing, and he said, well, here you and Sean are struggling to raise money. I said, yeah, we are, actually. He says, will you come in and join us in Stockbroker? I said, well, I've never been through a Stockbroker. He said, well, look, give it a go. I came in and... Uh, Again, because he said, well, look, you've reinvented yourself. He was very open from the Duny Gould story. As a software person, you're very involved in the software scene. Marion wants to target that technology sector to come in and do deals. So I came in and uh, helped run the corporate finance side. Corporate finance side of a stockbroker is where you do deals, you advise companies, you buy and sell them, you do fundraise. Whereas the other half of stockbroker is where it's a Chinese wall where people buy and sell shares.
1: And how much did you enjoy the corporate finance? Because you only did it for how long? Four years, was
0: it? Oh, a bit more. 2001, to uh, We sold Marion. Five years. I loved Marion. Oh, it was such a fun. Because that was the time. It was a small. We were pushing up against Davies, Goobuddy's, NCB, pushing against everybody, creating the space for the... And yeah, it was good fun. Uh, it got bought in December. And there's good history Part of the reason I was leaving All Finance, there was a a push to sell it as well, and it eventually got sold for 55 million. So I always think, and I'd sold the family, but I always think it's a nice bookend, you leave and sell it, always leave things in good shape. Uh, So Marion got bought December 2005, I stayed around for the first year and a half at earned and I left to set up Raglan Capital, I thought I'd take some of the corporate finance team and I always hankered to run my own shop again, so that was 97, but for the first six months. 2007, two, right? Sorry, but, uh, 2007. And it was great fun because Marine had been sold and they're doing their own. The so in the mornings for six months, I'd go into Marine and help run the corporate finance business. And irony of irony was that there was a deal. <laughs> I just bought an EMAP, which I'd built a close relationship. I, within Merion, I'd built a little franchise of buying and sell regional newspapers, regional radio stations, and bigger ones. And I'd landed a deal in Marion in February. You'll probably remember these dates. February 2007, I'd been friendly with uh, the head of EMAP UK. We've, he gave us a mandate in Marion to sell uh, EMAP Ireland, which was DFM FM 104, and Highland Radio. So I did a deal with John Conroy. Then when I said I was leaving, Emap said, "Oh, we'll take the deal with yes." No, 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 we'll get sued. I can't. So I did a deal with Marion and Emap. Then I'd do the mornings in Marion, and I'd run the trade sale of Emap Ireland, which include the three stations, and I'd go in and work in Raglan in the afternoon. So we set up Raglan, and it was profitable from day one.
1: You got, if I remember correctly, a very, very large price for Emap.
0: Absolutely, two hundred million cash. Now, luckily, they the person who bought it. Um, There was 2 underbidders, under-bidders and and Dennis O'Brien, I'd meet him from time to time and he'd be joking. He says, oh, you've charged me far too much. But I said, well, Dennis, remember on the Monday morning I rang you and TV3 had agreed to match him and pay all costs. And there was a third bidder who was never disclosed. Uh, So, yeah, it was just, look, the height of insanity, 2007. Um, And
1: the irony, of course, is that EMAP itself ended up being bought by Bauer which in the last couple of years bought out Dennis O'Brien and has taken ownership of Today FM again.
0: Exactly. And look, 2007, that was the value of the business because the beauty about it, sometimes you sell a business and there's no underbidders, but that case, there was two mad interested underbidders. And that was probably the zenith, the peak of media assets in Ireland and worldwide.
1: TV3 was probably very lucky, Doughty Handsome, the owner, because if they had bought the business at the time, they probably would have gone bust.
0: Well, I wouldn't say bust, but it was... But they came but, close
1: but, enough as it was anyway. Yeah, to, on, on their on the own. The I
0: presume they would have put in more cash or done something. But they were very keen. Uh, I'll never forget. Uh, they rang up on the Monday morning when the deal was announced over the weekend and say, look, we'll match uh, the bidder and we'll pay all his costs and... To walk away. And there was a third bidder, I said the exact same. So I had the pleasure of ringing uh, Mr. Dennis O'Brien Monday morning to say, Dennis, I know the deal's done, but you do know there's 200 bidders and one on ones to pay you all costs and pay a certain sum of money to go away. So. Years later, when I'd meet Dennis occasionally joking, he'd say, look at him, he robbed me. I said, no, Dennis, remember the phone call? Luckily, there, there was Andrew Bitters."
1: And as an agent rather than a principal, did you get fun to of doing those type of deals? Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> and that's like, I think, what gets me out of bed in the morning. My wife says attention span of a gnat.
1: Yeah, but hang on, there is a difference, though, in advising and doing the sale on behalf of others than there is to doing it for yourself, though, isn't there? I mean, you're not you're not invested in that particular transaction.
0: It's close, actually, uh, invest, or corporate finance, the American version is called investment banking. You're advising people to do the deal. So one thing is close to doing the deal is actually advising. So there's, there's a good fee. There's no thing called no phone, no fee. So when you do the deal, you get quite a decent cash payment. If it doesn't happen, you don't get paid. So no phone, no, no fee the world over is a very attractive way to sell businesses. And it's the closest thing you do to get running your own business. However, uh, say I say around 2010, 11, 12, I decided I had enough of being that person in the middle. I call it the meat in the sandwich, being an advisor. And I thought, look, I'm going to have a go with doing some of my own businesses.
1: So tell us what you decided to do, how you went about doing it.
0: Um, again, going back to Johnny Gall, I'd always end up with some spare cash. I'd put into small cap public companies, always this thing for small public companies, and in particular because I bumped into Gene Murta, mayor of Kingspan, of Gene Senior, in Monaghan at an evening meeting. I was driving back from Donegal. He was had an investor meeting in, I forget the name of the hotel, he was doing an IPO. And it was 89. I remember buying a small amount of shares in his IPO. And every year, this share would double, would double. And even the present day, Kingspan, I still have some of my original IPO shares. Every year or two, I sell some off, I sell some off. Kingspan has gone up almost 50x since his IPO. So that, I got my taste of small cap public companies. You have to be very careful. Some don't work, but a lot of small cap public companies do work. And basically, in, I decided I'd helped guys called Cove Energy in 2009. It was, we needed some money for an office, so we subbed out an office. And Cove IPO'd a 2p, or it was sitting on AIM, market cap half a million. And then within a very short period of time, they found gas in Mozambique and it took off like a rocket. So they sold out in 2012. I was their advisor, an the advisor in this case, I was only if I didn't get much. So the guys behind said, Look, we really want you to help do it again. Stop all this corporate finance work, and we'll help you. So we set up Fastnet, and that was where I was the, the chairman, the co-founder, and drove that, listed an aim. i say we had a good run. We got it to 100 million, took the share price from 6p to 36p in 18 months. Oil price collapsed, and I said, wow, we used to move. The thing about small capital, you've got to move really quickly. So when oil price collapsed and fasted, I said, what? looks and smells close to the risk economic profile of a small oil discovery company pharmaceuticals so that's where i set up for amrit took the remaining cashews and in it asked the shareholders for approval and we changed the name and found a really two brilliant guys to come in and help build the company
1: but you tend to buy existing companies is it rather than try to start things from scratch
0: absolutely hugely important and that I probably learned from trying to fix the family business in Donegal, it took about 10 years, and I'd seen different people over the years do it much quicker. Cove Energy picked up the stressed assets that were in bankruptcy. So again, having been close to bankruptcy, the family business in Donegal, I realized banks can be irrational. So Cove picked up distressed assets. Fast had picked up distressed (laughs) assets. And Amrit, we got going by buying a distressed company in Germany called Birken, that a very famous German entrepreneur uh, called Peter um, Steele, the guy behind Software AG, had put 56 million in. He tried to sell it to a failed sale. We offered him one million to take it away and a percentage of the IPO.
1: Okay, how do you find these companies and how do you value them?
0: Going back to... Doing lots of interviews, meeting lots of people. You just keep asking around, getting on bankers. Basically, that one would have came through bankers in London because the beauty about doing small cap IPOs you do need to meet a lot of bankers. And this is the corporate finance people. So, um, yeah, we found it basically... You have to have a filtering mechanism uh, and you have to look at loads of things very quickly. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And when we were putting Amrit together, the view would be it would be a fast grown, but we'd pick up distressed assets. So we picked up two, did the IPO and then did two more post-IPO.
1: Now, the financing of that is of interest to me. And I suppose we're getting a little bit technical, but into business, but I think it is important enough. You have a dislike of debt based on your experience as a teenager.
0: Absolutely, hate debt. Well, the big problem is that... Because
1: an enormous amount of Irish businesses have used debt very imaginatively to fund themselves and to get enormous returns, regarding it as, rather than giving away equity, as they would see it, giving away shareholdings, use debt to build the business, and yet you don't.
0: Yeah, look, it goes back to some people like debts. I've this model of where I put small-cap public companies together now, Fastnet, Amrit, open orphan and pool bags. So our model, I just think there's different, every user is different, every needs money. So you put cash to fund the business or debt to fund the business, or in my case, we use the public markets. And the beauty of the public markets, it's really difficult to do the IPO, but once you're public, you know, have a currency, you can buy businesses by issuing new shares. So that's our model uh, to issue shares in a new company. And then you've got to run very fast. That's the difference with debt. It sits there and you service the debt, and once it's service, you pay the interest rate. But if it's equity in public companies, this is the beauty of why I feel very strong, but small cap public companies haven't done four of them. Kingspan have thousands of people in Ireland, is a public company.
1: 22,000 people globally.
0: Globally. Ryanair was a really small public company day one, thousands of people in Ireland. Paddy Power now, Flutter, thousands of people in Ireland. Those three would never have stayed in Ireland if they hadn't been public. The reason it's public, you never have to sell the company. Okay, most of our public companies, at some stage, we try and sell them. But a lot of public companies, for instance, Kingspan, Flutter, CRH, um, never have to sell because shareholders want to cash out. They can. So it's a just, mechanism for the to sell
1: yeah. without the control of the company Precisely. changing. Okay, so you did. Amrit, and you brought that to the market. Did you make a lot of money personally out of it?
0: A bit. Uh, what I would word, say. In other words, yes. Yeah, a reasonable amount, but then I don't, what I do, I try and roll it into the next investment. Being perfectly honest, the CEO and the CFO would have probably made multiples what I made because we put it in Nasdaq, and they would have a share option pool. i I come in with equity, so I wouldn't have any share options. So their, their equity and share options, yeah, would have made a lot more than I made, but we're all very happy. It goes back to, I'm not really, some people are very motivated how much money to make. I didn't really care how much money as long as I built a company, it made money, and really importantly, the shareholders made money. Because as the person putting the companies together, there's only so much money you can use. So the average shareholders would have gotten average five or six X times the money. I got a lovely check earlier this year. So that's my model is put vehicles together. You can bring people in get a turn in the money, and they can trade out.
1: Do the products or services matter to you, though? Because two companies that you have, HVivo and Poolbag Pharma, strike me in reading about them is that they do important things. But is the importance to you in the profits and returns that it can make rather than actually the products?
0: Both. Okay, being frank and honest. But probably more important for me is building something that investors can make money in because it's, there's so many people have a slightly different philosophy in life. Oh, let's just take investor money and in. don't worry about it. So everything we do have this rule, you must protect the principle. Have people write a check. How do you get the money back to them? So in what was used to be known as Open Orphan, people came in pre-IPO at 4P. We IPO at 5.7P. Did have bought more distress, bought two distress assets. We're up to 48p on huge liquidity. Yeah, what does it the do? The share dropped back a bit now post-COVID, but still about 20p. People are up four or five times the money. That gives me huge satisfaction. And along the way, it's a really exciting company, I can tell you. It tests vaccines and antivirals. It was two companies that lost their way. We merged and acquired them in Open Orphan. Then we changed Open Orphans' name to Hitch Fever because one was called Hitch Fever. But basically, it was a great place to be in during the pandemic. It gave me a complete insight because we were running vaccine testing programs in the UK. It was very UK centric. Um, we did a small office here. How do you actually test science. vaccines? So basically, HV was a company. We provide whatever, services people Yeah, all drugs in the world primary, go through phase task. one, phase two, and phase of three. testing vaccines. Pre-phase Pre one, you're test testing antivirals. In animals. Make sure they're not toxic. But then phase one, phase two, phase three has to be in humans, because ultimately, us humans will use the drugs and consume them. So they're done, uh, HVIV does a quarantine study on volunteers. All drugs are done on a volunteer basis or on patients.
1: How does it work?
0: Well, very simply, we bring people into a quarantine facility in London um, and they're inoculated Four weeks beforehand, half them with a placebo, half them with a vaccine. We bring them into a quarantine centre, which is almost like a private hotel room. It's sealed. There's no external viruses come in. And we then infect 100% of them. So that means we can test, does a vaccine work or does it not, in a very short period of time. We all know that traditional Pfizer, AstraZeneca had to go all around the world do 150, 200,000 people to test that the drug work this way. Very small number. It's called a phase 2A. But again, it's not, there's no magic to it. It happens across the industry all the time.
1: And you do this on a contract basis for the manufacturers? They just,
0: yeah, exactly. And within HVivo, they had a biotech arm as well. They were developing their own drugs. So we spun that off um, two years ago because you can't have pharma services and the biotech because pharma services customers are big pharma companies. And it actually had this biotech arm which... We'd be seen to compete with us customers. So that's where Pool Bag, we spun that out two years ago. And then in the last week, we're really excited. We're putting the band back together again, like the music. We've now got some of the key Amrit folks. Uh, they joined us last week uh, on Thursday. And now they're coming in to really turbocharge Poolbag Bag to see, can we repeat the exercise?
1: When you say turbocharge, what do you mean?
0: Um, well, <clears throat> we took Amrit from 29 million market cap. Now, we, I'd say was really the CEO and CFO, but I was there for the first two years on the board helping and guiding, and it got sold for a billion and a half early this year. Seven years, 30 million to a billion and a half. Now, the sharp price didn't go like that. There was a number of distressed acquisitions done, but the view is we can do it again with Pool Bag. So, we brought in the key staff. Pool Bag is around, uh, what, we're about 50 million market cap today before we announced our friends from the band coming, it'd gone from 30 million to 50 million. So one press release last week added 20 million to the market cap. Now that's the market believing, wow, these gentlemen and a lady have done it before. Can they do it again? And that's, we're doing a very thing that's in America. Loads of people in biotech or tech companies. Day one, you sell it. Day two, you go back and do it again. Day three. So the first time it takes this long to make a certain amount of money second time round you can do it twice as much in half as long so that's really putting the band back together what they know in business
1: And the other company you have European Green Metals what's that?
0: That's one we we're planning further down the road sometime next year provided we make good progress over the next 3, 4, 5 months in pullback, which I'm really convinced so it goes back Amateur Success successful because I found a brilliant CEO and a brilliant CFO.
1: The new business though is contingent on what you do in Pool Bag, is it? Correct,
0: yeah. Look, Vivo. we brought investors in, it's almost not mission accomplished, but we've built a great business market cap, 150 million from 10 million. So now that attention span of mine now is focused Pool Bag. And kind of do it bigger and better the second time around. It's almost an Amrit 2 type venture. We've got some of the core staff who are left. KZ bought them. They've come in. But the critical part is with transformed Amrit, you have to have real sales, real revenues, and real profits. So Poolbeg, we've guided the market now in the very near term. Rather than being a little lost-making biotech, it's been around two years, exact same as Amrit. And we're at that inflection point. We'll bring in sales, revenues and profits.
1: Who are your investors? Do you have a sort of a club that you go back to of people, favoured people who invest in call for real ideas?
0: Yeah, and this is the part of, you probably know as recently I've been kind of pushing some articles in the press. I've been quite lucky because, okay, I'm pushy and I've got through a lot of context. Nearly everything we do is done out of London because, look, unfortunately in Ireland, just the environment, not sure why, and Marion, we loved helping people, but in recent 15 years, it's become really difficult to IPO a company out of Ireland, really difficult. So I'm very keen to share what I've done. I've done four IPOs. It's a fantastic way. You can create the next Kingspan, you can create the next Ryanair. So the investors are people who make money primarily in London will go again. I have some Irish investors who buy the shares, but I'm trying to encourage, and I'm hugely optimistic in this last week. I have spent 10 years knocking at the doors of good buddies, Davies and other brokers said, please, sir, will you help me do an IPO? And kind of go away. We do any big companies, property companies. Last Thursday, Davies invited myself, the CEO of Poolbag, the CEO of HViva in as an experiment. I think it's the first time we've done it in years. And I think they were surprised 65 very high net worths turned up to hear the story. So I think the model in Ireland is, small cap IPOs is part of the mix. Yes, there needs to be property. Yes, there needs to be multinationals. But small cap IPOs can really grow fast.
1: See, I'd imagine there are a lot of people who are listening to this, or a lot of people who are involved in public debate, who just see the stock market as a sort of an upmarket casino, that this is where wealthy people gamble and speculate on making money through businesses. But That is a rather limited way of looking at it, isn't it? And misses the potential for the stock market in Ireland to actually provide the capital to build the businesses, that you said, and particularly so that we're not always dependent on foreign investment into the country.
0: Exactly. So I think, look, we've you look, I heard uh, our friend that had this uh, enterprise Ireland, Mr. Shannon, say during his tenure he had 150,000 FDI jobs. It doubled to 300,000 during his tenure, which is amazing. FDI is very, very mobile. Uh, It comes, it goes. We've had a fantastic 30, 40 years. I just think there needs to be another piece in the economy. And look, in the 40s, 50s, there's always been IPOs in Ireland. There's been a dearth to them for 15 years. So I just think it's a piece. And the beauty about it is when you create them, you can grow really fast. On the back of that article, I had dozens of Businesses around the country, I put an article in the Irish Times opinion piece saying this is why there should be more IPOs. Saying, look, we'd love to IPO, we don't want to sell our business, we're the fourth generation or some third generation. So, public companies allows you to take some money off the table and never really start the firing clock on selling. If you take private equity or venture capital, their funds, the minute you take in PE or venture capital, you've fired the starting gun on selling your business because they need their money back. Whereas Public markets, it's just another way of growing very long term. And I would disagree in the casino piece. Everyone is of a pension. The world is a pension. At least 50, 60, 70% of every pension in the world is public stocks because property goes so much, government bonds goes so much, but... Traditionally, for about 100 years, shares do over a 10-year period grow better than any other asset class. But
1: does the government and the state care enough other than actually managing to get money for itself through the sale of bank shares or getting the stamp duty on share transactions? Do you think, does the state understand the importance or even if it does understand want to do anything about it for fear of a populist reaction against any support for stock markets.
0: That's a good point, but my view is it's a piece, that probably the people, more importantly, I think it'll happen. Obama once said, never waste a good crisis. The stockbrokers in Ireland, being honest, had no interest in small-cap IPOs because they made so much money in the last 15 years doing green property, the big property ones, but then suddenly they realised they go, Kingspan, there's National Teeth, oh, it's leaving, going to the States. But finally, I think the stockbrokers, and that's why Davies invited us in last week after 10 years of knocking to present two small companies to their high net worth investors. So I think it's not the government. We always, as a country, the government must fix this, government fix that. I'll come back to an idea how I think the government could transform the economy about property. But I think, no, the way to transform small cap IPOs is there is layoffs in both stockbrokers. There's two remaining ones, Goobuddies and Davies. So never waste a good crisis. I think the people who love stockbroker, I used to love it myself. I really, oh, we, we need to grow the small saplings to create the next kingspan, to create the next paddy power. And that, I think, is happening. We don't have to expect the government to bail out the public markets.
1: OK, when we finish this, I'm going to give you as a parting gift a copy of my new book, Who Really Owns Ireland? So that gives me the opportunity to ask you, what is your idea for developing the economy through property?
0: OK, I think uh, we're always, as an economy, really lucky. We're a small island off another island of mainland Europe. Everything's going right. There's low, there's low unemployment. There's one big elephant in the room: property, and I think overnight, uh, the property bubble or the property issue could be solved by literally. If I look around here, low rise Dublin as a city. I spend two days a week in London because that's where we do all our public company work. I just think whoever the next government's coming in and even huge surprise seeing Johnny Ronan appreciate Mary Lou turning up to open Salesforce Tower i think the next government whoever they're going to be in one fell swoop double the housing limit wherever it says four stories as we have here in in Leinster Square if you're building it goes eight if you're down the docks, it says eight storeys, it goes 16. If you're out in Dunleary, it's usually six, seven storeys. So I think any, the government could fix the housing crisis. Do you think
1: they would be able to do that without the amount, This is a big part of my book, the amount of opposition to change, the amount of people who are settled and who are well off, who try to protect what they have rather than allowing other new generations coming up to have a share in what we need in this country?
0: Well, again, history repeats itself. I said, 81, property crisis, bank crisis repeated in uh, in 2007. When's the last time we had the same huge problem? In the late 48, 49, 50s, the cities in Ireland were tenements. There were sewers running down the streets. Between 1950 and 58, the kind of government of national unity doubled the housing stock. If you think, if we drive around Clontarf, Rialto, all those semi-detached whitewashed houses with a little bit of red brick around the windows. Built 53, 54, 55, 56. So the government then could double the housing stock within this country, one fell swoop, double. And I, I'm convinced where it's going, I think Johnny Ronan's pointing to the future. The next government is inevitability. Sinn Féin's gonna be there. You and me and happy middle class people will not vote for Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin want to stay in power at least two terms. They're the people who are gonna say, well, Matt, you'll never vote for me, so you, I'm going to allow eight storeys in your back garden. And that's, I think, what's going to happen. Double the, and that's literally one stroke of the planning laws. The government says we have a national crisis, and it's approaching crisis. Our kids need jobs. Our nieces and nephews need jobs. Sorry, jobs. Houses. They can't even rent. And literally, if you go down to the docks, if you double, even Smithfield, there was a big argument last week. I thought it was ridiculous. It was something, it was Seven stories was too high in Smithfield. That's a scandal. Should be 25 stories in Smithfield. We just need to raise the height all around the country and the housing crisis is over. But middle-class parties, Fianna Fáil, Fingale, could never do that because their followers would never let them. But there's other parties. And I think other parties are beginning to sound this pivot. And I think, remind me in a year's time, I think the fact that Johnny Ronan said, thank you. And he used the word in yesterday's paper for her an enlightened view to property that Salesforce to her 26 stories was a good idea.
1: Except it's not going to get to 26 stories because it's built now at 13. It was limited. By the way, nobody knows what way I vote. I have to tell you, that's a big thing. Not even my wife or children know which way I actually vote. I think I might have, if anyone ever did know what way I voted, I think I might surprise them, but I'll leave it at that. But I'm just interested. Do you think so that... Even if Sinn Féin comes to power, that you as a business person could not vote for them?
0: Uh, what I would say, likewise, nobody knows how I ever vote, even my kids. I encourage them, or 16, you must go and vote. My view is I have a lot of Northern connections. If you ask any Northern Irish business, particularly a good, strong DUP business person, they say there's only one party in Northern Ireland at Council level and Assembly, that's Sinn Féin. They're seen as the most pro business party in, believe it or not, people, they say the DUP are too busy fighting among themselves. The SDLP have no interest. The UUP have no interest. So in Northern Ireland, believe it or not, I know it doesn't sound good, the, I am not pro Sinn Féin. I won't be voting for Sinn <laughs> Féin. But my view is never waste a good crisis, as Obama says. There's a monster crisis. And I think Sinn Féin view, they want two or three terms in power. They're after your daughters vote, my son and my daughters vote. And what they'll do is, and I'm conv- no, I don't know. I'm only, don't know, I just think that thing, when did anybody in Dublin think the head of Sinn Féin would be down at the opening of Salesforce Tower saying that's a great thing?
1: But why wouldn't you vote for Sinn Féin?
0: That's a good question, I don't know. If I voted for him, I wouldn't tell you. But anyway, what I would say is, it, my view is that democracy is a great thing, proportional representation. If they get into power there's going they're not going to be there's going to be other the beauty but here's the one thing what two countries in the world do not have PR UK and America what two countries have these nasty populists the Tories have gone wonky the Trumps have gone wonky the great thing about Europe and most of our coalitions so if, if Sinn Féin get in they'll have a coalition party and I don't see them going crazy because if they go crazy, it's one term in power. They don't intend, I don't think as a party, they're planning to be one term in power.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I would say, Unfortunately, Central and Eastern Europe may have proportional representation, but they're having their issues a bit like the UK and the US at the moment, as well, particularly with populism. But that brings me to my final question for you, that... If we don't start out our housing crisis here in Ireland, a housing crisis which is giving a lot of the younger generations, making them really, really dissatisfied and angry, which is causing all sorts of just practical problems, such as, for example, we now don't have enough teachers in places like Dublin because they can't afford to buy our rent in Dublin like they would have been able to in previous generations. It's really affecting recruitment to the Gardaí. It's in fact, It's affecting... Inward investment as well. If you don't, what type of country are we going to have if we don't sort out the housing problem? But
0: Matt, I think you've already said the answer. The beauty about a democracy, you kick out the boys and girls in power. And look, being frank, look, the boys and girls power, they've created this crisis. We've had a terrible crisis, 2007, 2008. The world was bankrupt. So many of our friends and relations were out of jobs. We got through it. This is a blip. The, I look, literally, and, and trust me, I, I just think the housing crisis in 1950, we doubled the housing stock between 50 and 50. I drive around the country, we just need to double the housing stock. A small anecdote at the height of COVID, I had a friend who had two apartments, rented them all his life, and I met him for a coffee in September 2020. He said, won't oh, believe it, Carl. My apartment's lying empty. He said, even the homeless won't move into it. It's the first time. And that was because 50,000. Google, Facebook, people went abroad. That was literally you couldn't give apartments away in Dublin for six months during COVID, nine months because a lot of the kids went abroad. Create two hundred thousand units through the country. Housing crisis is over, and that's where I just think the current boys and girls in power, as a democracy, the people are starting to vote. Just hang on, and it is on every door. So I am really optimistic. democracy can solve problems. Yes, Eastern Europe, you get these people who try and take away democracy. Look, our friends in Hungary, he's trying to destroy democracy. Our friends in Poland did it. And they got, so I think the beauty about democracy, a government will be elected, hopefully, in the next 12 months, and they will say, right, the biggest... Look, the country's in great shape there's low unemployment, there's loads of jobs. Yes, there's a bit of a pullback at the minute. That's no harm in the tech sector because it's a big bubble. You want to soften it we had that. So I'd be really optimistic in the next 12, 18 months, some government is going to, and the simple one is just basically double the height. You'll be pissed off. I might be pissed off if there's an eight-story tower behind my house, but my kids will love it because they'll say, oh, I've got a place I can rent. I've got a place to live. And that's the happy ever after Ireland. Fix the housing crisis. And a little island off an island of mainland Europe is a pretty cool place to spend the rest of our lives.
1: Friel, thank you so much for joining us here on Magnified. Magnified. And that's it for today's Magnified with Matt Cooper. There are plenty more in this series. So we hope you get an opportunity to listen to the new ones as they become available. Or if you're not familiar with the old ones, well, they're all there as well. Wherever it is, you get your podcasts, Magnified with Matt Cooper on Apple, Spotify, or indeed the GoLoud app. And again, thanks to Strategic Power Connects for its assistance and help in putting this podcast up on your platform. Until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you for listening.
0: Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect.
1: Go Loud. Sounds better with us.